Hey guys, welcome to Google Podcast. I am your host, Rob Watson, and I've got a really a great guest lined up for you today. Her name is Dr. Sarah Davies, and she's a functional medicine practitioner. And I've been holding off on actually posting this one for a while, and it feels like this is a perfect time with it being the start of a new year. So on that, we made it into 2020, folks. Going to give ourselves a pat on the back. Often, I can, um, between Christmas and New Year, I can do a little bit of reflecting back on the year gone by, some of the highlights, lowlights, you know, taking everything into consideration. But this one was interesting because you kind of go back 10 years and it can be amazing to think how far we can come in 10 years. I think often, we often overestimate what we can do in a year, but but seriously underestimate what we can do in say five or 10 years. And and often when we have goals and, and intentions for ourselves, we can almost want them to sort of like manifest really soon, whether it be like, you know, a transformation in our health or our career or our relationships and we kind of want it to happen now but sometimes things can take years and even a decade or so to really transform so I've been doing a lot of reflecting on that to see how much my life has changed and, and the person that I am now and I'm really grateful for the, the changes and the shifts that I've made in my own life and I'm sure or all you guys could reflect on on many great things that have happened to you in the past 10 years. And even if you're not particularly feeling that great now in yourself, I think there's always an opportunity for us to, to be grateful for the changes we've made, for the things that are in our life right now. I know that January can tend to be a bit of a challenging uh, month for, for people with, you know, Christmas is gone and maybe they've overindulged at times and back to work and the weather's not particularly great and you know all all that but I think it's a great time for some you know setting some intentions and and seeing if we can see them through to set ourselves some goals and it doesn't have to be grand things does it you know it can just be something small or anything but anyway that's my little thing about the new year and on to today's episode which is with as I said Dr. Sarah Davies she's a functional medicine practitioner she practices in in Cheshire in the north of England and she's been doing it now for um, quite a number of years. She's also a trained GP and works for, has worked as an NHS doctor for 14 years or more and she really transitioned into functional medicine because she wanted to maybe be able to get to the root cause of some of her patient's symptoms. Anyway, I won't go on too much because Sarah says all this way better than myself, but she's seeing some amazing results in people who are maybe having got Alzheimer's, who've got autoimmune conditions, people with diabetes, people with toxicity issues. Um, I'm really helping to transform people's health and also in a very empowering way. It's showing that we can get well, we can get better from uh, health issues and health challenges that we had. We don't have to just take the the general view on stuff that we have to take a pill for the rest of our lives. We can actually take that the control of our own health. So anyway, I'll leave it up to Sarah to talk a lot more about this. So anyway, let's get into today's episode. Same time, it's great to be in doing something that you're really making a difference and you can really see an effect for couldn't people. go back to normal medicine after this. Yeah, no. <laughs> this is this is the best job I've ever done. So I need to make it work. Yeah. That's amazing to hear. I think more people that can be doing stuff like that, that they're really passionate about and they feel like they're being of service and making a difference. And also they're getting to huge benefits out. You must get for yourself, you know. Yeah. You'll be able to improve well, your health and well-being along the way. And, and my family. So I'm going to start it off by really looking after my family. So, um, yeah, it helps everybody. Um, they've been my guinea pigs. Yeah. 
So for those who may not be aware of, of functional medicine, could you just maybe give a little bit of an overview of what it's about and how you got into it? So um, functional medicine is really about trying to understand why people get uh, sick, why they become unwell. Rather than what we learn in traditional Western medicine, when I go to med school, you learn basically how to take a patient history, how to do some tests, and you arrive at a diagnosis for that patient. And typically that diagnosis is then going to be paired with some medication that the patient goes away to treat the illness, and that'll be the end of the story. But in functional medicine, we try and have a look at why the patient developed that problem in the first place. And that means that we can actually try and get to the root cause. And what's really interesting is that if you understand why something happens, you can often go back a little deeper and change things at a more fundamental level, which means that you can sometimes get rid of diseases without any medication. And sometimes instead of just masking the symptoms, they actually disappear altogether. Um, the reason I got into it um, is I'd always really been interested in dealing with patients with difficult symptoms. I think um, I used to collect all the all the women that people couldn't get better. When I the first first job I had, um, people who had chronic fatigue or who had funny symptoms that no one could uh, treat, all started to migrate towards my office, and I started running late in my surgeries. But I was really really interested in the fact that some of these people would be able to make themselves well using dietary changes or lifestyle changes. And that wasn't something that I'd been taught about in med school at all. Um, but it seemed really obvious to me that uh, people could make themselves well. And these were people that typically were fairly untreatable. So chronic fatigue, for instance, we have a really, really limited uh, set of resources to help these people um, NHS-wise. They tend to get some graded exercise therapy maybe, um, some cognitive behavioural therapy and some support. Um, but there's not a lot often that can be done to help them. Um, and when I came across a few people who'd actually managed to go from um, very sick to fully functioning again, just through changing diet, what kind of got me wondering was, why aren't we doing this with everybody, even if a tiny percentage of patients with say, chronic fatigue get better with taking, changing their diet, we should still be doing it for everybody because there's no risk in it, um, it's really safe and it might work and it, you know, otherwise we've got no treatments. And I started noticing that patients would do the same thing with uh, arthritis, I've seen, saw quite a few patients actually in NHS practice that would come in on a special liver diet. Um, and although as doctors were sort of trained to uh, maybe dismiss uh, a lot of patient stories like this, it always really intrigued me and I could see that there was something genuinely going on. Right from sort of 10 or 15 years ago, uh, I'd started seeing these patients and being interested. I wasn't really sure why nobody else was interested, but interested me and just doing research online, reading uh, books um, and, and eventually um, I had a colleague, um, Lee Willoughby, who's now in New Zealand and um, she and I were, were really good friends and we were both interested in nutrition and uh, the effects that you could have like, through changing diet and lifestyle on health. 
And we found a course uh, run by Institute for Functional Medicine in London back in 2015. Uh, and that's when I really got into functional medicine and started training. So you've been a GP in the NHS for what, 14 years, 15 years? Yeah, 14, 15 years now, yeah. Wow. Uh, I still do um, one day a week. So I work uh, in the surgery that I base my private clinic in um, downstairs. And, and I see 30 patients, 30, 30 to 34 patients a day. And then three days a week, uh, I have my private clinic upstairs and I'll see four patients a day, maybe, maybe speak to a couple more on the phone. So there's a big difference between what I can offer uh, when I'm working in my private clinic uh, compared to what I can offer downstairs where I have 10 minute appointments. But because over the years my mindset about how to how best to treat people has changed, um, I, I actually practice functional medicine most of the time now. I, I don't do a lot of the pill for every ill. Obviously, if somebody walks in with a, a chest infection, they'll have antibiotics. But if people come in with chronic pain problems or children with um, glue ear or tummy problems, I'll always give the parents that option of would you be interested in trying to see if we can work out why your child is unwell, what's making them allergic to things. Um, and, and most patients I find are really receptive and really happy that I've taken the time to offer the options. Uh, and I've just got really long lists of success stories from just being able to offer little simple interventions in that um, 10 minute time frame. Sometimes it's not 10 minutes and I do tend to overrun still, but um, yeah, so I'm gonna carry on with my NHS work um, for a bit longer. Um, and see how it goes. Maybe if my clinic starts to get a bit bigger, I will have to give it up at some point. So that's great that you're still able to make a difference. You know, in them thirty patients a day. That's almost that's more than what you'd see the rest of the week in your own private practice. Yeah. So, but it's great that you're still able to do that. And maybe it's you know you can see the benefits of keeping a foot in there as well to to seeing them type of patients because it might be different to the people that you might see. Are they, is there much difference or is there a lot of crossover with people? There's, there's a lot of crossover in general, but I think by the time patients have committed to come to the clinic and sort of embark on a big treatment programme with me, they tend to be at the much sicker end and more complex end of the spectrum. Um, which is a shame because it would be really nice to work with um, more simple patients in the private clinic because they tend to do really well really quickly mm. and very simple interventions can get them better. Uh, on the other hand, I really enjoy working with the complex patients because I'm kind of geeky about trying to work out what makes people tick and why they've got sick. Uh, and there's a massive satisfaction being able to help people when they've not been able to find anything else that's worked for them as well. Um, what I have thought about is trying to offer something that's a little bit more low-key and a bit cheaper for patients who aren't really ill to come and just do health optimization work with the clinic. So we're thinking about setting up some group visits so that we can just talk about diet and lifestyle in relation to, say, autoimmune disease. Um, uh, and then also thinking about uh, being able to offer patients the opportunity to work with me um, with a life coach so rather than seeing me all the time I'll work with a life coach and I'll give them a set of uh, a treatment protocol maybe that I'm hoping will work for them and then they get to work through that with somebody else 
It sounds like it'd be really useful. So obviously you're still practicing as a GP. Are you finding over the years you've had much sort of like pullback or friction from say other doctors who aren't necessarily have been sort of as intuitive, as empowering as you have in terms of all the research you've done over the years and then finding a different route? Because from my understanding is there's very little training in terms of nutrition when you're training to be a GP. Is that still the case or is it changing? I mean, I, I've it's a long time since I went to university now, but uh, my understanding is that there's still not very much in the way of um, diet, lifestyle, nutrition training uh, given to doctors when they're training. Um, they have a lot to cover uh, and a lot of that curriculum is about learning how the body works and then we also dedicate a lot of time to learning how drugs work and how to give them to patients safely. And so I think it would be really nice to see uh, GPs being taught about diet and lifestyle medicine early on because I think the guys who haven't had that introduction that there, there is a tendency to kind of dismiss it out of hand as as in it's not going to work um, because everybody knows that if you tell people to eat healthily and exercise more they don't go away and get necessarily fitter and they don't do anything you say necessarily but when we're talking about interventions from a functional uh, medicine perspective the interventions are really quite specific and targeted at helping the immune system reducing inflammation and actually finding out what works for that patient and so is there friction yeah there's friction sometimes i think that like my colleagues downstairs uh, understand that i'm a good doctor and appreciate what i do and tend to overload my clinic sometimes by sending me all the complicated patients that they, they're not quite sure what to do with. So, I mean, they, they trust me to, to look after these patients and that's good, but um, especially when it comes to things like looking after women who need um, T3 thyroid medication, um, uh, when I then send them back to the GPs because it's something a treatment that's not really available on the NHS at the moment and um, that can create friction because GPs don't like to feel that there's a, a private outlet out there which is doing a better job than the NHS can do um, and it, it, it isn't good to feel challenged either as a doctor if you don't understand why I might be doing something so my patients go back to their GPs and may say they're taking five or six different supplements yeah, and the GP, of course, has got no real um, knowledge of those supplements, and some of them will be quite dismissive. Um, and occasionally, I'll hear good reports from secondary care from my patients. Uh, not always, unfortunately, but I think we're really at the start of a journey of letting this kind of medicine become a bit more mainstream. It's in the media now; people are much more aware. Um, and eventually that will filter through into medicine. I'm just not sure how long it will take. Yeah, it feels like there's a paradigm shift going on and it has been going on for a while and we're starting to see it. it from my own understanding of research, like America's really sort of been like leading the way and it, it seems to be like Europe takes about five years for it to sort of like catch up in some ways. So um, yeah, it's, it's exciting. I think it ties into people maybe feeling more, wanting to feel more empowered in themselves and feel like, they can find a way to heal themselves and feel better rather than maybe sometimes feeling like, oh, well, it's just hereditary, there's not much you can do, it's, you know. That, that's an amazing part of functional medicine is that actually, as a doctor, I don't do much for these patients. I give them education 
and then they go away and heal themselves because you do need to be quite motivated um, to make the diet and lifestyle changes that we recommend which is why sometimes I think perhaps working with a life coach would work well someone to hold your hand um, but in terms of America leading the way uh, in showing that it can work yeah I think that's really true uh, and there's some amazing trials going on in the Cleveland Clinic at the moment um, Mark Hyman. yeah with uh, alongside uh, the Institute for Functional Medicine uh, and what's amazing that is what's driving it forward is the insurance companies who are realising that if you do these trials, not only is functional medicine safe and effective, but it's also a lot cheaper than the drug-based alternatives. And so the insurers are really happy to pay for a functional medicine approach. And I think the Cleveland Clinic now has got a two-year waiting list wow. for people waiting to be treated via a functional medicine uh, paradigm rather than the traditional uh, Western medical paradigm. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot more awareness now. It is starting to take off. And what's really lovely to see is if you go to conferences, just loads and loads of young doctors really interested, really want to use this way of working with their patients. Um, and I know the, the lifestyle medicine, particularly um, their conferences are really well attended and um, that's really heartening to see too. Yeah, it does sound amazing. How many practicing functional medicine like practitioners are there, you know, approximately, you know, in the UK? Has it really grown the past few years? So, yeah, when I started off uh, back in 2015, when it, so I opened my clinic January 16, um, I think you went on the IFM website for people who were taking on patients and there must have been five or six people. Uh, now there's well over a sort of at 100, 150 I think. They're not all doctors. Um, and then some people have uh, fully finished all their um, modules and their exams and some people are at various stages of working through the training. Um, I've finished my training now and I'm waiting for my exam results in the next week or so. So hopefully uh, I'll, have, I'll be certified soon. Um, I think, it is definitely it's definitely growing not only amongst the medical profession um, but also there's lots and lots of therapists out there so uh, nutritionists uh, chiropractors who are wanting to use these techniques and with their patients one thing you just touched on then about how the change in america with the way the insurance companies are now getting behind it and seeing that it's actually going to be beneficial and it feels the same obviously we have a different model here with the nhs but it's the budget's well over 100 billion a year, isn't it, to run it? Surely, and I'd imagine a massive amount of that goes on chronic illnesses. I don't know what the makeup would be, but if there was a shift in it and there was more of you know functional medicine applied within the NHS, what's well, going to potentially save billions? Um, I mean, the, the the really good example at the moment is the work. Um, uh, the lifestyle medicine doctors at the moment driving forward the low carb um, diet for type 2 diabetes. So, I mean, Dr. David Unwin, who's based in Southport, has shown that he can basically hand a good proportion of his drug budget back at the end of the year by instead of prescribing anti diabetic drugs to his patients, he actually de prescribes them puts them on low-carb diets, these guys lose weight, they get healthy, they can come off their drugs, and we're now seeing that it's definitely possible, even in an NHS setting, to reverse type 2 diabetes. 
Now, diabetes globally at the moment is being driven by uh, our food environment. So we, we have a refined carbohydrate environment, which is basically diabetogenic and drives high blood sugars. And more and more of the population will becoming more sedentary and more obese. Um, and so actually, if these changes were adopted across the NHS, uh, that could definitely save save millions and millions in prescribing just for diabetes alone, let alone the, the benefits of the weight loss in terms of things like um, heart disease risk and um, dementia risk and blood pressure. So at the moment there is there are still, I think, political blocks to implementing low-carb diet, diets with diabetics, which to me just seems uh, ridiculous. Um, but there's still a big drive, uh, unfortunately, to promote the, the old-fashioned way of thinking that we should perhaps be looking at low-fat um, diets, which there is really good evidence that, that changing towards low-carb is, is much more beneficial. And that's low-carb, high-fat So, yeah, low-carb, high-fat, but high in terms of healthy fats. So it's really avoiding the trans fats that we see in processed foods because they're just going to cause us um, heart disease to, to be driven further. But if we're looking at um, unprocessed healthy fats, actually there's no evidence that that drives heart disease. And I think there's still a lot of confusion both amongst the medical profession and the public thinking that uh, if you eat fat, it's going to basically fur up your arteries and give you a heart attack. That's uh, definitely not seen to be the case at all. And in fact, the, um, the Mediterranean diet, where we encourage um, nuts and avocados and olive oil uh, and oily fish, uh, shows us that healthy fats are actually imp- uh, reduce the risk of cardiac disease. So in terms of trans fats, we're talking like vegetable oils. So we're talking about vegetable oils, especially if you've heated them. So if you're going to bake with vegetable oil, fry in vegetable oil, so sunflower oil, rapeseed oil, then um, the fats become oxidised and so that's when they become quite reactive and cause damage to the cell membranes uh, and the lining of the blood vessels. Um, If you do want to eat um, natural seed oils and nut oils or sunflower oil even uh, you can do that in small quantities but really that should be should be cold pressed and drizzled on as dressings or added after the cooking process so if you're going to heat fats you want to think about heat stable um, things such as coconut oil uh, olive oil uh, or you can use avocado oil if you can afford to cook in it yeah. yeah, we've got we've got avocado, but we use it sparingly when we're yeah, cooking. Yeah, sparingly in cooking. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm aware that that seems to be more uh, tolerant to heat than even uh, olive oil as such. Very very heat stable avocado yeah. oil. Yeah, mm. in theory you could fill your deep fat fryer with it. Wow. <laughs> there you go, listeners. Um, get back on the uh, fried chips. <laughs> Do you know what? I'd be interested. Um, well, not fried chips. <laughs> I'd love to hear then, patients that come to you, what, what are the tend to be like you know, the conditions, the symptoms that you're generally sort of experiencing? So, most of my patients have got either a fatiguing illness that hasn't necessarily been diagnosed or have got some form of autoimmune disease. I'm now starting to also see people with cognitive decline and dementia as well. Um, so there's a there's a fair mix. Um, what I would say, so chronic fatigue syndrome, 
within people who've been given a diagnosis of chronic fatigue or who just feel tired all the time, there's a big spread in terms of what the actual underlying cause is. So I see a lot of um, people, especially women with thyroid disease that maybe hasn't been fully treated or has been um, undertreated or not, not diagnosed. I see worryingly an increasing number of younger people even with undiagnosed B12 deficiency um, with fatigue and neurological symptoms uh, and it's amazing how unfortunately the, the diagnosis of B12 deficiency can get missed I and mean, it's great for me because I, I can make them feel well within a few weeks um, but I think that's so when we talk about nutrition not being taught to doctors I think there's a real tendency for doctors to dismiss B12 as just being another vitamin and really not to realise the consequences of not recognising and, and treating the disease. <clears throat> and also a lack of recognition of the fact that the, the reference ranges and the tests used in the NHS are really not quite fit for purpose for everybody. Um, I have quite a lot of people with B12 metabolism disorders who have normal NHS B12 readings but perhaps very low intracellular B12 um, and unfortunately they don't get picked up and they can get quite advanced disease before maybe they come and see me and, and it gets recognised. Uh, I, would, I would like more GPs to be able to recognise B12 because I don't really, I shouldn't be seeing those patients, they should be dealt with outside a specialist clinic. Um, autoimmune disease, um, I see a lot of arthritis, B12 deficiency in itself is, a, is an autoimmune disease, lots of thyroid disease driven by autoimmunity, um, lupus, uh, and then increasingly um, more patients with MS and neurological conditions. Um, more recently I've been working with Dr Dale Bredesen's protocol to reverse cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. Um, starting to see some good results just from a couple of months of treatment of people. Um, with uh, cognitive impairment and that's been a real eye-opener to me uh, and I'm sure it's a, an eye-opener to most of the population to realise that actually a disease like Alzheimer's can actually be treated with functional medicine techniques and you can actually see reversal of cognitive decline. I sometimes see children as well, they're really rewarding to work with, they're children with allergies um, and sort of what, what's generally labelled uh, functional bowel problems or um, skin problems because they usually respond really beautifully just to diet therapy alone and very little else. Um, the NHS is really hung up on whether you've got an IgE allergy to something. So, And as long as you're not going to have anaphylaxis that's going to kill you, then there seems to be a sort of real lack of interest in this layer of people who have serious um, conditions and, and, and discomfort um, just driven by food sensitivity or food intolerance that if you go about looking for them in the right way uh, you can identify and then alleviate the whole problem rather than just trying to mask it with uh, medication. That's amazing to hear all the results that you would get particularly like with dementia because I think that can be the case with even with sort of like going back even with cancer people think it's a bit of a death sentence and it's just going to go one way but to know that through functional medicine and you know other approaches around the world that you can do something about it it's really empowering to realize that and, and heartwarming to know that if you're working with the right people and you've got the right support because i think that's really key as well having the right support someone that you can trust who can guide you along the way 
because if you just go online and search for stuff, there's so many different things. So yeah, it's good to know that you're around here and there's hundreds more of you popping up around the country to help people. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing the uptake of the functional medicine courses now with young doctors. Is, there's, there's hundreds of them training every year now, which is amazing. Wow. Um, so yeah, we're, there's soon going to be lots more functional medicine doctors in the UK. With regards to dealing with complex treatment protocols, uh, like Dr. Bredesen's uh, Recode protocol to reduce uh, reverse Alzheimer's, yeah, it, it's much easier to work with a practitioner than try and do it on your own. There's, I mean, he's, a, he's an amazing guy. I went to hear him speak uh, about a month ago to a really packed audience, and, and he's just a, a, an amazing guy who's done all of this research uh, against... Um, in terms of even though he couldn't get funding uh, to do research because everybody just wants to test one drug against dementia and he said well I want to employ um, multiple techniques to get you know small gains in multiple areas to try and to try and treat people and he spent so long just trying to get people to fund that kind of research but now it's really bearing fruit and I think it's over 3,000 patients that he's well have been through his protocol wow. and he's getting good results in um, really significant percentages of those patients too. Wow. Now I'm aware that you, you know, you very much look at the science side of things as well so you do some really, like, offer some fuller lab tests and stuff so when someone comes to see you, you've got a big picture of what's going on. What kind of, you know, what kind of things would you do with a, with a patient? So. The first thing that we do is we take a really full history from birth or pre-birth through to the present day so that we get a really nice idea of what might be the triggers from the person's life, whether that be uh, genetics, so what they've got a family history, is there some trauma that they've had in their life, are there any clues from infancy of something that's happened to them or, or of allergies early in life that have looked like they've disappeared. Uh, so that history is, is the most important thing. And then the next thing that we offer is, is some of the more advanced testing that perhaps isn't available on the NHS. So when we look at thyroid disease, for instance, instead of just looking at a TSH or maybe a TSH and T4, we'll also look at the active forms of the thyroid hormones. We look at T3, go and look for antibodies. Has this person got antibodies against the thyroid gland that perhaps haven't yet materialised as hypothyroidism fully? Um, and we'll sometimes look at what's called reverse T3, which, especially in my chronic fatigue patients, can be high um, with normal levels of thyroid hormone. And because reverse T3 can mask thyroid, uh, the thyroid hormone effects, uh, people will clinically feel hypothyroid. So advanced thyroid panels will do a very full nutritional screen. So we do serum, um, B vitamins and vitamin D, which is often overlooked in the NHS. Um, one of the problems with um, nutritional screening NHS-wise is the funding, or, or lack of funding for it. So where I work at the moment, I can't get a vitamin D level without having a very in-depth chat with the, um, the laboratory manager about why it is I need it, um, because it's, it's deemed as a, a non-essential test. Um, as well as normal blood tests, we offer organic acid screening and amino acid screening. Um, so I use Genova Labs uh, predominantly for my big panels. 
Um, and that's amazing because you can really look at what's going on inside the cell so you can see all the B vitamins, uh, with how well they're being absorbed and utilised within the cell. You can start looking for bacterial and yeast overgrowth uh, and you can look at the uh, nutrients that fuel the mitochondria which make energy so to see how well the energy systems are working. Um, look at omega 3, 6 and 9 profiles. Uh, and look at nutrients which perhaps are not available at all on the NHS. So we're going to look at um, coenzyme Q10. We're going to be looking at glutathione, which is essential for uh, as an antioxidant and mobilisation of uh, heavy metal toxins. And we also look at all the um, mineral elements and maybe homocysteine. So we look a lot at somebody's avail uh, ability to be able to... Uh, detox normally, to be able to process and build proteins normally, uh, and to be able to metabolise their own um, chemicals normally. So you leave no stone unturned then, in a way? We, we try and leave no stone unturned. Obviously, it can be an expensive process, doing full functional testing. Um, <clears throat> and the metabolism part is just one aspect. We also do offer microbiome testing. So you can do stool analysis to see what kind of bacteria are growing there, whether there's any pathogens. Uh, and we also um, look maybe a bit more in depth at hormones, um, so the sex hormone pathways and whether they, those may be out, out of balance. So we have a lot of tools at our disposal, um, which is really nice and which I, I completely appreciate my NHS colleagues don't have. Um, and it, but it does mean that instead of trying to guess what's wrong with somebody and just instigating a general protocol and hoping for the best, you're actually giving them a really targeted treatment plan that's aimed at treating the problems that you can see on paper. And that's what's the real difference that I can see between lifestyle medicine and taking it to the next level and, and practicing functional medicine is that it's not just about diet and nutrition. We're actually looking at precision engineered treatment protocols for specific problems that we can identify on testing uh, and I think that's what really makes a difference especially when it comes to um, managing patients with thyroid difficulties that aren't getting better with the normal uh, treatments on the NHS and managing chronic fatigue it makes a massive difference. Yeah thyroid seems to be a big one like I know so many people in my family who have got, it's either underactive, it's overactive, and, and like you say, through the NHS you'll only get, the ranges are out as well, and it only goes like, you know, TSH and stuff like that, so it's... Um, so actually, uh, one of the things about me is, is that I actually have hypothyroidism myself. I've got Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, so um, I'm not sure when it started, I think I was quite overweight in my teens, um, which was possibly the beginning of it then. Um, and then I'd, when I um, first found out about doing the elimination diet for arthritis, um, that's, uh, that's when I basically changed my diet. I think I must have reduced my thyroid antibodies at that point. Um, so they were quiet for a while. But then in the last uh, 18 months, I'd started to get more tired and cold. And it was actually my staff that were all looking at me going, Sarah you really need your thyroid checking? I was like, no, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. Uh, and eventually the first doctor that walked in the door, they said, you've got to take her blood. And they, they, I, he took my blood for me and um, I, have, I had really low um, levels of T3, actually, and very borderline low levels of T4. Uh, and, and I knew that 
if I went to my own GP about that, they would only be able to give me T4. Uh, and from my experience working with lots of patients with my own condition, uh, I wanted to give myself the best chance of getting better quickly because I've got you know a business to run and a job and my two small children at home. So I've started T3 and I think if I feel more stable in the future, I might see how well I tolerate T4 in the future. So I'm getting help with my thyroid now and I feel loads better. That's good. I've got a friend actually, he's just, he's gone down all the natural routes and then eventually he just been prescribed T3 and he said it was like, it was like a, a switch being flicked and he was like, wow, this is what it feels like to feel normal and to feel good. Yeah, it, to be honest, within about three days, it felt as though somebody had kind of poured that sort of energy and kind of enthusiasm back into my veins. And I hadn't realised how tired I was until I felt normal again. Um, but yeah, so my enthusiasm for the work and kind of um, changing my, my practice and, and bring, moving things forward, it just really stemmed from starting T3, actually. Well, that's really good. And you touched on arthritis, so did you have arthritis when you were younger? Yeah, so I started with um, joint pain and swelling in my wrists when I was about 14, 15. Uh, and around my 20s it used to get quite severe and I'd also get facet joint pain in my back that would go into my ribs and make it difficult and painful to breathe, especially at night. Um, and all I'd ever did was sort of treat it with a bit of ibuprofen and, and, and ignore it and then in my 30s so after my first child it got really severe I would wake up and I would have pain in my feet my ankles my knees uh, my hips uh, and then taking my baby out of the cot it was really difficult because it would take about a minute to two minutes to be able to open my hands and my wrists would hurt um, so I had a couple of really severe flare-ups and what actually saved me was that my children um, had problems with the with um, with because they inherited my allergies. Basically, they've inherited my immunoglobulin G sensitivities. And so, although I wouldn't, I never did the elimination diet for me. I did it to help um, them when I was breastfeeding. Uh, and so, I did a an elimination protocol, the same as I'd share with any of my autoimmune patients now. Um, this was before I was practicing as a functional medicine doctor. And um, not only did they get better, but also my arthritis completely cleared up within about two months. Uh, and now I know it's just gluten related. So when I say I have arthritis, I don't have arthritis anymore. If I ate gluten every day, I would have a lot of joint pain. Um, but basically, as far as I'm concerned, I've got a lot. I've got gluten sensitivity. I'm not celiac. I've tested myself, um, but but gluten basically gives me uh, multiple joint pains. I also have cross reactivity with dairy and soy, so uh, my entire household are now gluten, dairy, and soy free. So I never put a patient on a diet that I haven't done myself, uh, or or don't do myself, uh, apart from the keto diet, which I'm working on. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing to hear that how, you know, you've had them experiences and you've been able to transform them. And in a way, it's almost a gift for you because that gives you the tools to how you can then help others. In a way, I think a lot of people who maybe move into certain places and certain careers, it's because they've been 
they've got that experience and they've had them challenges themselves that they feel like I can do I can share this now yeah so I mean by the time when I was 19 I had another autoimmune disease I had Guillain-Barre syndrome and I was paralyzed um by it and fortunately I mean this is where acute medicine comes in I mean the NHS saved me I you know I was not far off not being able to breathe I couldn't use my arms or legs I was bed bound um, and they gave me an immunoglobulin therapy and it went away within a week and, and after about eight weeks I could walk and do everything again and so I was really lucky to make a full recovery because not everybody does from Guillain-Barre syndrome but I think underlying uh, my multiple autoimmune conditions so I've got the thyroid, the joints and then the Guillain-Barre I think is this food intolerance the, the, uh, the gluten sensitivity um, and because I know it worked with me, it really gave me the confidence when I started working in functional medicine, before you've had experience you know, reversing people's autoimmune conditions, to think, well, it's worked for me, so it's probably going to work um, for other people too. And, and indeed, my uh, experience now is that overwhelmingly most autoimmunity can be quite effectively reversed just through diet. And it's a real shame that that uh, that fact is not acknowledged uh, and in fact is generally sort of thought of as slightly dangerous propaganda as far as most doctors are concerned yeah it's it's challenging isn't it like you touched on there there's so much to admire about the way medicine's developed in terms of like if i'm in a car crash and i need to be put back together or i suddenly have a heart attack that is exactly what i need in that moment and they would keep me alive and put me back together but it's just like you know you say when it comes down to more stuff to do with you know chronic illnesses and and whatever they are then yeah there's not really there's not really the, the right protocols in place which you do now offer so i'm interested to hear then some of because you talk about your own success stories and now you've been helping hundreds and hundreds of people through here for your own practice to hear like some of the success stories that you've had with people who are almost that at the you know, the wits end, they've done everything they possibly can, or they thought they had done it, and then they've come to you, and so yeah, it'd be nice to hear some of them. So, oh, there's, there's quite a few, what's most rewarding to work with, uh, I think, is uh, people with arthritis, they're, they're, they get better really quickly, so I had a, a young girl came to me um, in her 30s um, and she'd been put on a drug called methotrexate for a rare, very rare form of arthritis that gave her fevers and joint pain and she'd basically been told that she couldn't really come off it and they didn't have any other treatment for her um, and, and I worked with her over a period of six months and she was really keen to come off her medication even though I said well look let's get you well and then consider withdrawing um, and over that period of six months, all we did really was work with her diet and we supplemented her nutrition a little bit to help her, her gut heal and to help um, with her, her normal immune mechanisms so that they worked better. And her arthritis completely vanished, her fevers disappeared. She came off her methotrexate and realised that some of her symptoms were actually due to the drug itself and not the underlying uh, autoimmune condition. Uh, and not only was she able to come off the drug, but then she was then also able to start uh, planning a family. Because, of course, a lot of these medications, um, such as methotrexate, will stop you being able to conceive safely because of the potential damage 
um, to a, a baby with them. So that, you know, within 12 months she had complete resolution. And what was really funny was she went and shared this with her consultant. Uh, who just said, oh, oh, it's just a coincidence that she'd got better. Um, despite um, the condition that she'd been diagnosed with, basically, I read all the, uh, the prognosis online and it said it would typically con continue for life. So, uh, yes, uh, arthritis can be very rewarding to work with. Chronic fatigue, uh, I have a patient now who has been working with me for about 18 months. Uh, and she has been through various stages of being just about functional and then being bed-bound and crashing from time to time. And um, we did lots of work together on getting her nutrition right um, and getting her thyroid right. And then eventually we found out that she had a, a problem, a rare genetic problem, getting rid of heavy metals. And she started um, with a special protocol to help reduce the heavy metals in her body. And within about a six month period, she went from being practically bed bound to back at university and able to sit her exams. So uh, that was one of the most amazing um, recent things that I've seen. It was such a, a big marked difference from being bed bound to, to being back at uni again. Um, Oh, there's so many. Which ones to share with you? Um, a guy came to see me about six months ago with really severe brain fog and fatigue. He was struggling to um, to work. Uh, and he just was about to have a new baby. In fact, I think he came to see me on the day his wife was due, which I thought was crazy. Uh, and um, he actually confided in one of my staff that he had he'd paid off his mortgage and made arrangements for him not to, himself not to be able to work because he actually thought he wouldn't be able to continue. Um, we treated him for uh, bacterial overgrowth uh, of, his, of his bowel because he, when we did testing we could see the really high ammonia levels caused by excessive fermentation uh, and we improved his nutrition and his diet. He's, he's been extremely compliant, he's an amazing guy. And um, now we're about six months later and he's told me that he's just been rated third in his company, he's back at work, he's doing everything and he's just enjoying time with his kids. Wow. So yeah, he's doing really well. That's amazing to hear them stories. And for you that must just feel phenomenal to know that you can make such an impact. And it's really transformational for them. Their life is unrecognisable in what they can go on and that will continue for the rest of their lives, potentially. Yeah, I, I, I just um, in the NHS, one of my really standard things to do if somebody comes to me with either fatigue or autoimmune type symptoms or bowel symptoms is just to simply give them a copy of my elimination diet and say, this might help you. And uh, a lovely lady from, from my clinic downstairs in the NHS, all she did was come and talk to me, 10 minutes, I gave her the diet, and she's come back five weeks later saying that her life has been transformed. That was just a 10 minute interaction with wow. her. Um, her. Her lifelong anxiety has gone, um, all her digestive symptoms have gone, all of her chronic pain in her joints has gone, uh, and she feels amazing. Um, so yeah, it, it's amazing how very small interventions can make 
huge uh, impact that can of course go on forever whereas just another pill and just another uh, prescription is not actually fixing the problem whereas uh, if you can find the root cause the person actually gets better yeah. um, just touching on in terms of some of the pills that you mentioned person with arthritis some of the pills actually with the side effects sometimes you, you read into it because I'm going back when I was in my 20s I'd go to the doctors and I'd get prescribed stuff and I'd just sort of take it and not realise potentially the side effects and I know that some of them made me feel worse and when you actually look into it I didn't even it's, it's a small piece of paper it's all wrapped up you don't look at it and you think sometimes you think how, how can this actually be prescribed if, it, if they're the potential side effects in some instances I think one of the reasons why I never went to my doctors with my own arthritis in my 30s was because as a GP I knew about what the rheumatologists could offer me in terms of treatment and I didn't want to take it. That, that I, just, I really would, would prefer to just kind of carry on with pain and swelling rather than take the medication because I, I was fully aware of the potential harms of it. Um, I think for some patients there isn't another option, you know, this, this therapy sometimes is quite slow to work and they need something in the interim. But yes, the ways of working with arthritis are very, very different. So the NHS therapies are actually geared at um, suppressing or killing part of the immune system. So you're actually left with a person who's immunocompromised and more likely to get cancers and more likely to get infection. Um, on the other hand, you know, for these patients, you've got to remember these drugs can be transformative from a life of pain to a life of being able to function. So people are, and rheumatologists, of course, take those risks. What we offer in functional medicine, though, is a chance, and it's, to be honest, it's a fairly good chance that you can, be, can do that without drugs. And instead of suppressing the immune system, we actually encourage the immune system to stop overreacting and to start working correctly again. So there's no immunocompromise. In fact, you're actually improving someone's ability to kind of patrol for bacteria and viruses. Um, and at the same time, perhaps suppressing the, the reactions which are, are happening against just normal everyday uh, foods that are perhaps going into their bodies and being misinterpreted as a danger signal by their bodies. Um, the, the food sensitivity autoimmunity link, uh, especially in arthritis, is, is huge and um, you shouldn't really underestimate how powerful the dietary change is in turning, up, turning it off. Mm-hmm. Um, there, is, there is definitely a place um, for disease modifying therapy that is used in secondary care and we're very careful not to withdraw patients from it uh, unless, unless we can mm-hmm. typically advise someone to stay on it for six months while they get better and then to withdraw slowly with help from their rheumatologist I uh, have patients that don't want to do that and that have taken themselves off it but they have not been counselled to do so by me um, yes, so, so functional medicine, if it works, is really good. We also have a few other disease-modifying uh, medications that we can use from a functional medicine standpoint that aren't commonly used uh, in the NHS. So I have got quite a lot of experience now using low-dose naltrexone, um, which is a, an opiate receptor blocker, and it, the tiny, tiny doses we use, it's really safe, there are no real known um, side effects or problems with it 
Um, and that can be amazingly uh, effective at switching off antibodies in people with thyroid disease, especially Graves and Hashimoto's. And we think it's also can be useful uh, treating Lyme disease uh, and some patients with chronic fatigue and MS. So I do quite a bit of work with um, low-dose naltrexone um, as a disease-modifying drug um, when diet or whatever else isn't working or when we need something to switch off antibodies fast. Uh, that can be effective. Hey guys, this is me just um, interrupting this episode. No, it's not an advert. It's just to let you know that very shortly there's going to be um i i went over to see interview tour for this podcast and partway through the episode it started torrential rain outside and we were in this bit of a loft space so i think it was hailstone and it was kind of pelting against the the roof and the windows so there is a bit of background noise now which will last about five minutes or so but anyway there's still some great information here so please stick with us thanks so you've obviously you know you've got so many people come in different conditions chronic fatigue arthritis thyroid issues, um, gut issues and stuff like that. Is there any stuff that you would tend to say, you know, offer a certain protocol which you think can work for all of them? I know it's not like, but is there any some like base level stuff that you'd say, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, as functional medicine doctors, we do have a bit of a reputation for stopping people eating gluten. That's the, that's the big one. Yeah. Uh, and while I wouldn't say nobody should eat gluten, what I would say is if you have a predisposition to autoimmunity um, or if you have chronic fatigue, one of the first things to try would be eliminating gluten from your diet. It, it can cause quite a bit of damage to the gut. So even if you're not responding immunologically to the gluten itself, uh, it can increase uh, intestinal permeability and allow uh, other um, maybe undigested food particles or, or bacterial uh, and yeast endotoxins into the bloodstream which can trigger the immune system to overreact and so going gluten-free is one of the kind of core messages that our patients will get when they come to the, the clinic um, and that will tend to, to be across the board whatever you, you manage to come to us with um, other than that, we're going to be looking at making your diet as nutritionally complete and nutritionally dense as possible. So reducing sugar and refined carbohydrates, eating a, a broad spectrum of fruit and vegetables, so trying to eat the rainbow every day, because all of those different colours in the fruits and vegetables have phyt different phytonutrients in that have different roles in the body. Uh, and so if you can kind of keep e eating uh, a big variety of foods, then you'll get all the little trace elements uh, and different antioxidants that you need. Um, we will also make sure people are trying to hydrate themselves properly. We would encourage people to have a healthy intake of protein, whether that's a vegetarian protein uh, or uh, a meat protein. And we'd advise people to look at the quality of the food that they're eating. So we tend to advise that you should be organic, especially um, with the more uh, contaminated foods, if you can afford it. Um, because we know that organophosphates and pesticides can build up in, uh, in children especially. And also in lots of our patients have got problems with their detox systems. So they either have a, 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 an enzyme or a liver problem that might stop them being able to get rid of things like organophosphates. And they'll tend to sort of persist and build up in their systems. Um, and it doesn't, doesn't just stop at foods, we also ask people to have a think about the water that they're drinking. 
and um, that we advise filtering it or drinking bottled water. We'd advise looking at your personal products and trying to avoid nasty chemicals that you don't need to be exposed to, like uh, SLS and parabens and benzene. Um, so looking at more natural alternatives that aren't going to be toxic and that aren't going to give you um, a heavy metal load. So uh, aluminium containing deodorants, we tell, tend to tell people to discontinue and find a more natural alternative. Plenty of great things in there really for people to, yeah, potentially action it. And you touched on about organic and I know it can be a bit of a, you know, some people think, well, I just can't afford it. And I know in terms of, you know, meeting the fish, particularly a chicken, for instance, can cost like four or five times more than a non-organic. So it's a bit of a tricky one. Is it the clean, clean 15 and the dirty dozen? That's right. So the clean 15 and the dirty dozen, they tend to change each year as well. But there are certain foods that are a lot more likely to be pesticide laden. So unfortunately, your, your baby uh, salad leaves, uh, blueberries, um, celery, anything that's sort of going to be uh, get a, a dusting um, to kind of keep nasties like slugs off it. Um, can be quite high in pesticides and um, whereas when you've got things like avocados or fruits that you can peel sometimes they'll be a lot lower um, and so they would be safe perhaps to buy as an as a non-organic and um, for myself i tend to get an organic fruit and veg box every week and i'll buy organic when i'm in the supermarket but if i'm out and i can't get anything else my kids want some blueberries once in a while then they might have non-organic blueberries which i know isn't perfect but at least they're eating something with uh, good nutrient qualities at the same time. Yeah, and I think it's about to do our best. Yeah. Because I think, I know from my own experience, I've ended up getting quite anxious at times thinking, and then that anxiety is actually just making things worse when I should really do. Well, while I'm at home, we've got filtered water, we filter our shower water, we buy organic as best as possible, we have um, an something to purify the air in the house so we know and we have all plants everywhere so we know we're doing our best to create a healthy environment at home and if we can go out and get organic which you can't really that much at restaurants you can certainly buy in shops but you, there's not many i think there will be more and more over the next few years and stuff will be popping up but I th now i'm much more relaxed when i go out and think you know what i'm not eating out three times a week i might go out a couple of times a month now so i'm like i'm okay with that yeah so eating in restaurants i i don't think i would ask anybody to be making sure it's organic you do what you want to go out and enjoy yourself uh, if you're in a restaurant and um, because especially for someone like me i'm of, i already have food restrictions so with being gluten dairy and soy free i'm already asking restaurants usually to do something a bit different for me uh, and that's quite nice sometimes because you can ask for a more healthy option so i can have um, some meat or some fish with um, with a salad or um, vegetables without the butter on and so often um, kitchens have to think a little bit when they're preparing food for me and my family and we can ask for something a bit healthier. So with them kind of things do you do you ever ring up the restaurant beforehand that you might do just to sort of touch up touch base with them or do you tend to just pull the waitress over when you get in and say listen these are the things. <laughs> so um, I've, my children are, are five and eight. Uh, our, our going out to restaurants tends to be fairly spontaneous. When we've, so we've been out for the day and we can't be bothered going home and cooking, we, we might take the kids out to a restaurant. 
Um, we tend to be quite selective in which restaurants we choose, so we find ones that we know will cater to us and stick with them. So we, we like taking our children to Pizza Express because they actually have got a great uh, lining in allergen-free foods. So my, my children never get pizza at home because I'm not going to cook them pizza. Because, and, but, but when we're out, then they can have a gluten-free base and they can have the dairy-free cheese and it's like, it's a real treat for them. So yeah, we, we, we can, so some of the big chain restaurants are actually much better at providing uh, an allergen-free menu if you're on a budget. Um, if it's just me and my husband going to eat out, to be honest, if you, if you go to a good quality restaurant, I've not really found a problem uh, asking about allergens on the day. Um, most of them are now fully aware they all have allergy menus or you can speak to the chef and they'll prepare something for you um, it's the, the medium range going into pubs who may not be sort of set, set up as well for, for allergies um, that can sometimes be an issue and you end up having chips and vegetables or something it can it can be terrible but but most of the time um, we, we manage it quite well now and it's something you just get used to doing yeah I know that you talked about um there's like people come with autoimmune issues and then it's the certain diets that are becoming quite popular over the past few years so very much like healing the gut healing the body so you've got the AI, AIP protocol for healing the gut and then you've got like the idea of a primal premium approach which is tapping more into our like ancestral way of eating and then something that I've become much more aware of and seems much more popular, like the ketogenic diet, and it's some of the results around that seems to be pretty phenomenal. Um, but it does seem to be kind of like us going back to our roots, seems to be at its core of the way we're going through, you know, the, the past, I think is it 12,000 years that we've been in the ag doing agriculture? And that tends to be, you know, if you go back before that, we probably would have all maybe had it more of a, or we would have all been more like a paleo primal keto type of diet, eating as nature intended. So definitely seems to be a swerve back. That what's um, what are your thoughts on them type of diets? So, one of our baseline protocols, if you come in to see us with autoimmunity, say, uh, would be to uh, try the autoimmune paleo protocol, which you you mentioned. Um, which is basically for me it's an oligoantigenic diet so it's removing all the major allergens from the diet over a four-week period um, but then at the same time we also remove refined carbohydrates um, sugars um, grains legumes so we're going back to a paleo diet and um, we're looking at as you describe it a, a nice ancestral diet so one that's unlikely to lead to um, the, the immune system being activated and we do that for four weeks uh, in most of our patients and then we would start food reintroductions the one food that we tend to not encourage people to reintroduce or to challenge uh, is gluten if they've got an autoimmune disease so yes we use paleo widely uh, and then after we've taken someone through the paleo protocol we're then going to look at what works best for them so lots of our patients will not only have maybe food intolerances but might also have some chemical sensitivities so we, we often find patients who don't process histamines very well and sometimes that can take six to nine months to wear off um, with with some help um, and support of the gut um, sometimes patients have problems with uh, oxalates or salicylates and they're much more challenging diets to look at um, but we have we work with a specialist nutritionist who can help patients with that. 
In terms of the keto diet, um, that's something that we're going to think about if we want to help start repairing the brain. You can also use a keto diet to reverse diabetes rather rapidly too, um, because it's very, very low in uh, carbohydrates. So keto is high fat, very low carb. So about 60% of your um, calories a day will come from fat. Um, you can adjust it. Um, each person will have a slightly different tolerance. And one of the benefits of being in ketosis, that means burning fat rather than burning carbohydrates, um, is that you get a really nice stable energy level. So whereas our blood sugar levels will go up and down, especially if we've got insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome, so that perhaps our bodies don't recognize um, insulin well and our blood sugars become unstable. With ketosis, you're basically burning fat 24 seven and you don't run out of energy. So you get a nice stable baseline. Um, the other thing is that our mitochondria, um, which are these uh, little tiny battery packs inside of our cells, they actually run around a third more efficiently uh, on in ketosis than they do um, burning sugar and so especially for patients with chronic fatigue um, what you're going to see is an, an improved uh, availability of, uh, of energy so the same number of calories in but more energy coming out from the mitochondria one of the problems with uh, instigating a, a keto diet is that the first couple of weeks can be really rocky uh, while your body makes the adaptive switch from burning uh, carbohydrates to burning fats and so people can feel quite um, unwell and sort of low blood sugary and especially if you've got chronic fatigue that's quite an unpleasant process to go through um, the other reason we would use it is to heal the heal the brain so Dr. Bredesen has shown that while in ketosis, this sort of fasting state, uh, the brain will actually go into repair mode. And when he's put patients into ketosis alongside the other measures uh, of his recode protocol, you can actually start to see growth in the hippocampus, which is the memory area of the brain uh, on the CT scan. So, I mean, and his... Um, his, his research into the uh, effects of uh, ketosis on the brain is really quite profound. Um, and so for all our patients who've got, say, MS, um, Alzheimer's disease, uh, or perhaps severe bedbound chronic fatigue, we're going to be thinking about, is the keto diet going to be a, a good thing for them to try? Um, one of the things about being in ketosis is you really need to have quite good thyroid and uh, function to do it. So to burn fat, you do need uh, sufficient uh, T3, the active thyroid hormone. So we wouldn't; it's not something that we would instigate straight away. We would always go via a high nutrient dense, uh, low carb diet first. And it's also quite important to get help when doing a keto diet because if you do it badly, there's going to be a lot of nutrients that you're going to start missing out on. If you start getting rid of uh, fruits and vegetables with colours in them so that you're just having green leafy vegetables and meat and fat, you're going to be missing out on a lot of phytonutrients. So it has to be done with care. Uh, and one of the best um, sort of new ways of thinking about this that I've seen recently is that it's this um, thought of keto flex diet so you do a low carb say modified mediterranean style diet or a paleo style diet um, 
a couple, two to three days a week, and then you do ketosis the rest of the week. So you're going in and out of fat burning and carb burning, and that gives you metabolic flexibility and means that you can kind of enjoy social events, uh, weekends and stuff. So that's the, they're all um, ways of eating that we would encourage in the right setting. But I think it's really important to remember there's not a right diet for everybody and that everyone's different. Um, and if patients choose to be um, uh, vegan or vegetarian, then we will respect their wishes and, and try and tailor plans to them as well. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. Not, not um, one size fits all. It's all unique and we all work in different ways. We've all got kind of maybe different issues that we've got to work through and one thing that works for one is the other. And then, you know, we've got the placebo effect as well, which is... A, a, you know, a miracle in some ways, isn't it? You know, the, the effects that that can have just for you. I've, what I've found is if, if you're working with someone so and you believe in them and you believe in what they're saying, then straight away that just lifts you up, you know, and then and if you start to believe that it's going to work, it's amazing that what the mind can do. Have you watched your thoughts on the placebo? So, I mean, placebo effects we know widely, especially when you look at research into... Um, medication for depression. Uh, the placebo effect is responsible for most of the response to antidepressant drugs. It's really hard to make a drug that works better than placebo. Uh, but that that isn't something to be dismissed as um, something that's a fake. Um, it's actually celebrating the body's own ability to heal. So like you say, um, having hope um, and having a way forward and feeling positive about the future are ways to persuade your body to start healing itself. You have to feel that joy and that energy, um, especially if you've these, these patients who've been uh, hopeless and in pain for long periods of time or fatigued for so long or told that there's nothing else that can be done for them and that everything's been tried. For them, hearing the message that there is hope, yes, I think it really does help the placebo effect but the placebo being the body starting to heal itself, yeah. Yeah, wow, it's nice to hear that um, response. Um, so in terms of like, some other people out in your field that you may be getting sort of, um, that are inspiring you right now, so anyone's that, um, I know you've talked on, is it Dr. Brennan? Uh, so Dr. Dale Bredesen, <laughs> here, Bredesen. who is, <clears throat> has written the, the book, it's called the End of Alzheimer's. Uh, if you know anybody who's affected um, by Alzheimer's or if, if you have a family member, uh, I would really recommend getting his book and reading it. Um, sort of two chapters in, I was on the plane reading it and I just had tears rolling down my face, just reading people's um, stories about becoming being diagnosed with Alzheimer's uh, and desperately going on a search uh, people basically pinned him down and said you're the expert in Alzheimer's how do I get better because he's not a clinician uh, by trade and so he started helping people with uh, just amazing results as you can read in his book um, and, and it's a really it's a really tough one taking on Alzheimer's patients because of course every, no one believes that there is anything that you can do for them um, but listening to his work and the hope in his work has just been massively inspiring. And, and it, it, these things kind of, you get these amazing coincidences, don't you? As soon as I start reading about reading his books uh, and going to his conference, immediately I had uh, two patients booking with 
you know, Alzheimer's disease in the next couple of weeks. So I'm working with them on his protocol. So yeah, these things just get, get sent to you at the right time. Um, Dr. Sarah Myhill, she's, she's a hero of mine. Um, Sarah is, is a massive pioneer in the field of uh, chronic fatigue. Um, she's basically been doing it now for, I don't know, 20 to 30 years, though, not that long probably, <laughs> maybe 15 to 20. Uh, and she's got a massive following of very uh, loyal um, patients. Um, unfortunately, she doesn't take on new patients anymore, but she's been a, a mentor to me and is a, uh, has been kind of a real help, uh, especially with patients that I'm really struggling with. Um, she's someone I can talk to and can kind of give me advice from her years and years of experience working with really sick chronic fatigue patients. Um, so that, she's, she's been uh, amazing to, uh, to learn from. Other people that are inspiring me at the moment, I think... Um, you know, we talk about the founders of, of functional medicine, really. All these guys in America who, in the last 30, 40 years, have been out there at the cutting edge, getting a lot of criticism from everybody else for doing stuff that isn't normal and is outside the guidelines to try and help people. Um, there's just that. I can, you know, Mark Hyman, Jeffrey Bland, um, I've had um, a consultation once to try and help me out with Dr. Tom Salt, who's part of the IFM faculty, who's now um, stopped seeing patients to do research. Um, there's, there's just these guys are just really, really inspirational, um, and, and also extremely brave. I think this field of medicine, stepping outside the box and stepping outside the norm and having convictions to do something different. It is quite difficult. Um, as doctors, we are uh, trained to kind of follow rules and meet certain guidelines. And then when the guidelines run out and there's no way of helping somebody, there's a real temptation to say, I'm sorry, I can't help you anymore. But that shouldn't be the case. There's always more that can be done. But the problem is that we're not trained in how to do it. And that's, that's how I fell out of normal medicine and, and into functional medicine is because I was the person that always wanted to do more. I, don't, I can't live not being able to help people. Um, and maybe so it's maybe my drive to kind of be a better doctor and to kind of know more and understand more and not be beaten by these conditions that has, has driven me to, to kind of start a whole new um, line of work and... and uh, and learn functional medicine. Beautiful. You touched on Dr. Sarah Myhill and you know being a, a, a hero of yours. And I've just got into off the back of you, you know, tell me about when I've been watching all the videos and she's a real force for good and she will not bow down to pressure or to to the medical industry. She will go up, you know, head to head with them and she is she's been struck off hasn't she didn't she I think she's just um, she's been taken before the GMC I think 12 times maybe something like that um, basically just for helping people uh, and I don't think there's nothing that she's done wrong and she's never so she's not been struck off but she's been suspended for periods of time while she was investigated um, but, but frankly I think uh, that there were just a couple of people that decided they didn't like her and it was a bit of a witch hunt um, but um, 
thankfully she's still able to to uh, to practice but she's been through a lot in the name of helping people with chronic fatigue and uh, you have to have massive respect for somebody that is yeah. that brave yeah so sarah is properly brave and nothing's going to stop her doing what she believes is right uh, to help people um you know she that she is she is an inspiration um, I'm hoping that I don't have such a rough ride as, as she's had. Um, but I do know that colleague opinion uh, of uh, my work can be very varied. Um, and and for, that, for that reason, I, I will write to GPs about what they need to know about. Or if patients don't want me to write to them, I have patients that are actually afraid of sharing with their GP or secondary care doctor that they're doing work with me on diet and nutrition, which is absolutely ridiculous. But but patients don't want their doctor to feel that um, we are challenging their opinion and therefore uh, sometimes request um, that we don't uh, inform them of what we're doing. So, yeah, it, it can be interesting at times. Yeah, I bet. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, which is a little bit of a hot topic, is around like vaccines and particularly in children and, and whatever going up. And I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on them. So I think the first thing to say is that I have vaccinated my children, although I have felt extremely bad about it because I have definitely come across children who have, whose health ha- has got worse after vaccination. So, so number one, I, I don't believe that um, parents who see marked difference after vaccination are making it up. I think that, de- that phenomenon definitely exists. Exactly why it happens, whether it's to do with immune activation, so we know that uh, you can get increased autoimmune disease after vaccination. And in fact, I actually wonder whether that's what drove my own Guillain-Barre syndrome when I was at med school, was that we know that the hepatitis vaccines you need to have to go to med school have got increased risk uh, of autoimmunity attached to them. Uh, And so developing uh, Guillain-Barre, I always wonder whether it was vaccine-related or not. I don't know. Um, So so autoimmunity can be an issue. We know Guillain-Barre particularly, which is what I had, can be uh, related to the flu vaccine. Um, So that's why I don't have it, (laughs) even though I'm I'm working as a doctor because it was contraindicated and now I think the risks of becoming uh, paralyzed again are are too great for me to warrant having the the vaccine. The The other problem is that while 99.9% of the population are going to be absolutely fine with vaccines. Yes, there may be a small percentage that aren't going to be okay. And the problem is, is that we have a big public health problem here. If on the one hand, we don't vaccinate children, we will return to a time when children start dying of common viral diseases. It, it It will happen. Uh, and to to a certain certain extent, perhaps it has happened in some cases already. Um, and the problem is that for us as a society, is that we have chosen, or the powers that be have chosen, to sacrifice the health of a very small number for the greater good. 
and and I think that that's being done ne- without necessarily our informed consent. But the problem is, which parent is going to give informed consent for their child to be vaccinated, even if they think there's a tiny, tiny, tiny risk that damage could come to them? And then the problem is, if more and more patients, parents don't vaccinate, then there's a risk to children who are very ill, who can't have the vaccines, and who then may pick up the, the infection. I think there might be ways of making the vaccine schedule safer, And I think that we are very fortunate in the UK that if you think that your child is going to run a risk from having vaccines or perhaps they've had problems with one set and you don't want them to have more, you have the choice of not having them vaccinated. Whereas in the States, uh, that looks like a choice which is being taken away from parents, uh, even of those who have chromosomal disorders, metabolic problems, or who who were perhaps preterm. Uh, who we know are much more likely to have adverse consequences from vaccines. Um, it's an extremely controversial topic, and I would certainly not encourage parents not to vaccinate, but I would encourage them to think about ways to protect their children nutritionally around vaccination times. And if there has, if there is a, a family history that might be linked to uh, increased harms from vaccines then sometimes spreading out the schedule can reduce the burden of of heavy metal metal adjuvants which are given with the vaccines. So what lots of patients uh, don't know or parents don't realise is that when we give a vaccine we use an adjuvant to stimulate the immune system and that uh, used to be a mercury, thimerosal, um, but is now aluminium predominantly in childhood vaccines. and unfortunately if you have a detox system and you're one of these rare people who doesn't deal well with heavy metals then you're more likely to accumulate those tiny doses of heavy metal in your system over time the problem is we don't know who the people are who have got problems uh, metabolizing heavy metals Uh, we don't have uh, the ability to do big genomic screens on them all prior to vaccinations and therefore it's deemed safest to give vaccines. Um, The problem is that there's no forum for debate on this issue because almost there there can't be because you can't give the public a choice in this matter because too many of them might choose not to and then our entire public health strategy around protecting children from viral illness will fall apart. there are pros and cons in both directions um, and far far be it from me to say I know the answer to this one. Yeah, yeah complicated matter, it's not black or white. Very complicated and something that, that as a clinician really is very difficult to speak about um, because you could be told that you're an anti-vaxxer. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I recognise that there are problems that we have with vaccines and I wish that they would do more research and more and do more to make vaccines safer for the patients who cannot tolerate the heavy metals. How can you find out, can you find out in advance that a patient isn't going to tolerate heavy metals before you would give them the vaccine? Well, I mean, if they've had problems with one previously, you're going to think about it. Um, if there's a family history of autism spectrum disorder 
maybe. Um, I don't think that vaccines cause autistic spectrum disorder. I think that has been shown not to be the case. What I do think is that some autistic children have multiple chemical sensitivity or have lots of problems processing uh, chemicals and metals so that when they're exposed to the vaccine it, it exposes their underlying genetic problem or metabolic weakness. Um, and then of course you, you live with the consequences of having done that. But the likelihood is is that some of those symptoms would have manifested anyway. It's just they, they will manifest given the right trigger at the right time perhaps. Um, for, for myself, I, I know that I have, I have problems with uh, certain metabolic detox pathways, but that wouldn't stop me having a vaccine that I really needed to travel. So my family likes to go to Germany um, where there is a, a lot of tick-borne encephalitis, which there is no cure for. It's viral and if you get it, you, you can die. Um, and we, we go climbing in the forests where there's a lot of ticks have been vaccinated against TBE um, yeah so I think a, a measured response in all things um, and, and parents who decide definitely not to vaccinate their children they're not doing it because they're mad they're doing it because they've read information that shows that there could be harms and so to, to an extent those parents wishes do need to be um, do need to be honoured but at the same time, uh, I think this is just a discussion which needs to be had on a public policy basis. It's very difficult to say about one specific individual. Yeah, I was just going to say that then. It's just, I think it's just good to have the conversation and rather it just be complete politely, like say one's anti-vaxxers and it's the other way. It's not, it, there's somewhere... You yeah. know, in the middle, and I think I get it, but it's it's good to talk about it. So I appreciate you answering the question. Thank you. Thanks. Um, you know, for you personally, what is um, what do you do to switch off? You know, you obviously this is, it's more than just a job. It's very much like, it can feel like it's probably you're all in on it because you know you can get excited about new things and research and new possible things. So. It, I'd imagine it for me in my own experience of stuff it can be tricky to switch off because you have the hunger well I'm thirsty for knowledge and wanting to seek stuff but I'm interested in what can you do you mentioned then about going to Germany climbing well them kind of things will tie into you um, you know switching off yeah so I mean the first thing to say is that I've got two little boys so really I, I try and keep at least one day a week when I don't work that sounds awful um, but you know I'd like two days a week and preferably three and I'm, I'm hopefully working towards a better work-life balance um, so spending time with my children and typically at the weekend if it's if the weather's nice we'll go outside to the Peak District and do some climbing do some walking um, maybe see family um, if it, the weather's horrible we go indoors climbing my oldest one's now doing a bit with us so yeah climbing is kind of my my hobby of choice my husband is a really good climber which is why we don't have holidays we have climbing trips and <laughs> um, so uh, it's, a, it's really nice though because we get to travel the world um, and see see different climbing areas so different parts of the country that perhaps most travelers wouldn't see um, I like playing the piano and I really like to have more time to sort of get back into my gardening and things at the moment because I've been building my business and, and working two jobs 
uh, with two small children I don't have a lot of time for downtime at the moment I've got so many books that I've just I've got stacked up at the side of my bed that I want to read um, but don't have time to at the moment so I'm hoping things are going to settle down in the next couple of years and that maybe I'll get better work-life balance and maybe get to do a bit more exercise trying to get into yoga at the moment um, so so relaxing for me isn't really a, a problem okay I'll get tired and I'll happily relax and zone out and chat to my husband or play word games things like that um, but but it's actually about actually doing a little bit more outside of my job at the moment I'd like to do. So do a bit more travel, do a bit more exercise. So have you been to over to, is, it, is it your husband got anywhere near El Capitan over in, in California? No, so I mean, they, we've only had one American climbing trip where when my youngest was uh, one and a half. When my oldest, sorry, was one and a half. We only had a, one child at that time. Um, and we went bouldering so no big walling no 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 L cap um so bouldering is where you just take big crash pads and you you climb and um, maybe sort of maybe 20 foot off the floor kind of thing so so we've we've been climbing in america but only bouldering not done any big wall stuff we, we mainly do sport climbing in europe so that's where the walls are already bolted and you kind of climb up with a rope and clip in as you go along so like we like climbing in the Frankenjura in southern Germany, uh, lots of places in France, um, go bouldering in the forest in Fontainebleau, um, just south of Paris. Um, been to Thailand, I've done lots of travelling, climbing. That sounds amazing. I haven't actually done, I've done a little bit outside with a friend and then I go to the bouldering centre um, over in Liverpool and there's such a nice vibe about the place. You just... It's just lovely. Everyone who works there, whatever, it's just so supportive, and you just have some really nice chats, and everyone's sort of behind you and willing you on to make that that leap or that next bit up. And yeah, I um I haven't done enough of it recently, but it's something that for me, that I think me chatting to you and hearing that, and I've seen some of your your husband's photos on his Instagram, I found one of them inspiring me to get back and climb up the wall. So yeah, learning indoors is, is great and it's a really nice sort of indoor sport. It's, it's a nice sort of camaraderie, isn't there, in the walls, but climbing outside is, is really something special uh, and something that hopefully as the boys get a bit bigger that we'll be able to do more as a family. Obviously the little one's too small yet to join in and tends to get bored when we go outside. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that in the future. Great stuff. So one of my last questions, which I ask to all my guests, so this podcast is all about sharing what good people are doing, like your good self, and um, what advice would you give to someone who's looking to go out there and do their own bit of good in the world? If you found the thing that you're passionate about and that you really want to do, there will be a way to do it. I've been, I've always wanted to help people, that's kind of why I went to medical school, but it wasn't until I was sort of in my mid-twenties that it sort of crystallised that I wanted to do something a bit different and a bit out of the ordinary with my medical career. Um, and just circumstances have conspired to allow me to do it, it's, it's been amazing. Um, but I think that's because I've always had in the back of my head that it's something I wanted to do, it kind of, that, that drives you. Um, 
whatever it is that you want to do, you can make amazing changes to people's lives. You should go for it. It's um, not only uh, helps others, but also can be life-changing for yourself as well. That's amazing. And yeah, you are the um, you know living example of someone who's doing good and is helping others, but helping yourself. So I would love for people who would be listening to this to also feel inspired to go out and do their own bit of good. So um, thank you very much. And then how, how can people best connect with you then if they're thinking, you know what, um, Sarah is close to me. I would love to come and um, come and see her. What's the, what's the best way for people to connect? Um, so you can go on our website, which is at www.drsaradavies.co.uk um, or you can um, you can Google us and we've got a contact number, um, which I can't remember at the moment. And um, we're shortly going to start having a bit more of a media profile on Facebook, so watch this space. Great stuff. Well, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. I really appreciate your time today, so thank you very much. Thank you. It's been great. So there we have it. There's another episode all wrapped up. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, it was you know, full of detail, full of wisdom, full of knowledge from my point of view. And I think you know, if anyone is out there who um, you know, is struggling with any kind of health issues and want to be able to get to the root cause of them, then maybe working with a functional medicine practitioner. And if you're in the Northwest, then I think Dr. Sura is um, potentially a great resource for you to lean on in, in that way. Um, yeah, I'll include a link to Sarah's website and to some of the things that we've spoken about today so you guys can go off and do some of your own kind of digging and researching and, um, and all that. So anyway, guys, until next time, have a good one. <laughs>